The Bible says this, David writes, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Yeah. Amen. Come into the house of the Lord. It's always a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I really do believe this morning that God has a great word for you. I, you know, I was really excited about this, this message because, um, as, uh, to be honest with you, as I was studying this and I was, I've been in this, this vein of worship and spending time studying worship, it just has blown my mind how much God has put in this subject of worship, uh, this idea, this dynamic. Truly, truly, truly this morning, worship is something God gave us. You know, I, I, you know it's, it's, such one, it's one of those things that's kind of a dichotomy because we look at it and we, we think, well, worship is something we give to the Lord, and certainly there's truth in that. But let me tell you something. God's not up in heaven nervous. He, he's, he's not insecure. He's not wringing his hands and slapping Gabriel and going, does anybody really love me? No, no that's, that's not the picture of God. God is secure and complete all by himself. God gave us worship. He gave us the privilege of worshiping him because he understood what worship is packed with and the benefit that it brings to our lives. And as I've been studying this and reading and just I've been just reading lots of different books about this and a lot of different things and different men's perspectives on this, it just has blown my mind. And so I'm very excited about this message this morning because I believe that God has given this to us so that we can change our lives. You know, <clears throat> one of the things that we say here all the time at Praise Chapel is we, we say that we want to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. We want to be able to change our environment rather than react to it. Amen. And so you, you say, well, how are we going to do that? Well, this is one of those ways. Can you say amen? And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to do that. And if you have your Bible, how many have got your Bibles here? Raise your hand. Now, I'm kind of curious this morning, how many have their Bibles on a digital device? Raise your hand if you got. You, okay, yeah, that's cool. Hold them up. Hold your iPhones up, your iPads. If you've got an iMac, hold it up. Those of you out in Facebook land, if you've got a digital, hold it up. Just hold it up a second. You know what? That is a blessing. You say, is it really a blessing? Yeah, the fact that we can look up the Bible in an instant now, search any word, get the Greek and Hebrew definition, and we can find out the history is just amazing. What used to, back in the day when I was first writing sermons, it'd take me four weeks to write a sermon because of the research. But now it's like, holy cow, right at the fingertips, just right on my phone. I can be driving down. No, I don't use my phone when I'm driving. But... But I could talk to Surrey, and Surrey knows all. How many know what I'm talking about? Or Google, just if you want to know something, just ask Google, right? But we appreciate that. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a commitment to you. If I see you on your iPhone reading or looking at it, I am not going to assume first that you're texting. I'm going to assume first that you're reading your Bible. Amen. If you are texting and you're trying to fool me, God knows. <laughs> and your iPhone is going to... No, I'm not going to... I won't say it. Or it, you, if maybe you don't have an iPhone, maybe you have... What's the other? The Android. Android. Maybe you have one of those or those cheap ones, you know. And you, I, if you really want to study the Bible, it's got to be done on a Mac. It's Apple products. That's, I'm an Apple guy. That's me. But anyway... We, we, we love that. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 4. We'll get to that here in just one moment. 
You know, in the last few weeks, we've been on this journey together um, looking at a life of worship. How many know this morning that God really does want us to have a lifestyle of worship? We've, you know, we've really discovered some things, I think, that, that, that are so true. See, worship really isn't about just a song, is it? There's no doubt that we sing to worship, and that's a big part of it, but it's not about a song. It's not about a service. You know, we call it a worship service, you know, or we say things like this, how was the worship today? And, and, and we understand what we're saying, but look, it's not all about that. Worship really is a lifestyle, isn't it? Worship is a life. It's something that we do, not just on Sunday. We don't do this just today. We should be doing this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all through the day. We should be worshiping him. And what worship really is, when you boil it all down, is worship really is the fruit of making decisions to lift his name and lift his goodness and his glory and all that he is to magnify him above everything else. That, that's what worship is, right? See, our Father in heaven, he is worthy of all glory and all honor. And he has to be the priority in all that we do. And there's a lot of things we do. And, 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 you know, I was talking to some people this morning, and we were talking about one of the problems of Christianity, I think, in America, is that we just have too many options. There's, there's just too many things that we can do. And now listen, God is not against us being, you know, having a good life and being involved in having experiences and pleasure and all of those things. He just wants to be a part of it. You know, when you go to Legoland, take Jesus with you. Brandy, Mike and Brandy were just at Legoland. But I know Mike and Brandy, and they took Jesus with them. You know, Jesus likes Legoland. (laughs) If I was Jesus, I'd like Legoland. Come on. He just likes it. So it's not that we can't enjoy life. We can. He just wants to be first. He, He wants to be the priority in all we do. See, when we go on vacation, we have a tendency to go on vacation from him. We ought not to do that. Amen? It's not about Sunday. It's about our life. And when you really start to understand worship, you begin to understand that worship is about relationship. And as we grow deeper into worship, we are drawn deeper into him because worship becomes the vehicle where we begin to understand and see things about him where we cannot see it any other way. It's through worship. It's in the dynamic of worship where we begin to see him in ways, in new ways, and in, in dimensions, and in and, and dynamics. It's, it's all of a sudden we go, whoa, God, you are awesome. Can you say amen? amen? And it's through worship this morning that we experience the deepest levels of intimacy with God. It's in that context of worship because worship is at the very heart of our relationship with God. Nothing is more important and nothing can replace it. Can you say amen? Amen. That's why this morning worship should remain a significant priority in the life of every believer. If we neglect worship in our daily lives, we will never walk in the place that God has called us to. Let me tell you something. God has called you to a significant place. You are not a number on a roll. You are not an anonymous name. You are God's child 
And he has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. You were deliberately and purposefully and wonderfully created. And it's going to be through the dynamic of worship that you discover him and who you are. It's when you discover him, you begin to look through a different set of eyes. You begin to see yourself differently. And it's through that dynamic of worship. And unless we make this a daily thing, something we do all the time, we will never walk in the place God has for us. So with that thought in mind, I want you to look at this verse of Scripture that we've been using as our springboard text. John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. It says, but the hour is coming <coughs> and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. That ought to blow our minds. He is seeking people to truly worship him. For God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. True worshipers this morning make worship a way of life. It's not about an atmosphere. It's not about a mood or a feeling. Because there's no doubt that emotions and feelings and atmospheres often accompany our worship, but they themselves are not worship. Worship this morning is surrendering our will and our lives to the truth of God's word. That's what it's about. Listen, listen to me. When we worship, we worship him when we lift his name and glorify him from our devoted heart. A heart that is devoted, dedicated to him. We worship him in our giving. We worship him in our serving. We worship him when we love others. We worship him when we share the truth of the gospel to a fallen world. We worship him when we trust him and walk confidently in faith. We worship him when we live in contentment and peace and joy and righteousness. Do you know all of those things are things that God gives you? Those are not things that you produce. Those are gifts that God gives. But worship is when we step into them and learn how to live in them in our daily life. Worship is when we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in our everyday life. See, a true worshiper is a worshiper who from their heart has given themselves completely and wholly over to God in every way. See, church, there's so many things we can give our life to, isn't there? And oftentimes we are. We, oftentimes the reason we have such a hard time relating to God is because we are alloyed, if you will. We're, we're not single. The Bible says this. I believe it's in, in Titus that it says this. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto the defiled, all things are defiled. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding that when we are pure... We will see clearly, but when we're defiled, when that word defiled means alloyed, mixed. When we've given ourselves to many things, then what happens is there's a confusion. In the Beatitudes, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, the, the pure in heart, they will see God. Amen. See, it's somebody that who has brought a singleness. The Bible says, when your eye is single, your body is full of light, but when there is this mixing, when your eye is dark or there is all these other options, when you're, when you're giving yourself to other things, that darkness begins to grow. 
And that's why he says what real worship, true worship, is when we worship from this place of devotion where we've given ourselves completely over to him, 100%. Now, there's a quality of worship that I think that we often miss because of this mixture of things. And this is what I want to begin. I want to begin to unpack this, unfold this for you because there's a quality of worship that's so wonderful that I think that if we're not careful, we can miss this. See, worship is attractive. And worship is contagious. Let me tell you something. When you truly worship God, (coughs) it's attractive to people. People are drawn to that. God is drawn to that. And it's contagious. There's, see, there's something about fire. There's a uniqueness about fire. It does one of two things. It either burns you up or lights you on fire. You either burn with it or you burn out. Amen. And so what he's telling us here is he's looking at us and he's saying, listen, this worship has the ability to do something. Why? Because worship is a celebration. And celebrations are never done alone. The only kind of party that you can have by yourself is a pity party. Right? So what are you doing? I'm going to have a party. It's going to be a wild and crazy party. Who's coming? Nobody. Just me. Oh, that's weird. That's just, that's off the chart. That's, that's goofy. How many know what I'm talking about? But a celebration is something that we do. It's something to be experienced, and it's something to be shared. That's what worship is. Can you say amen? amen. And because of the power of worship, worship will bring revival. Do you know that? Worship oftentimes brings revival to an unbelieving world. See, what we do in this building, in this place, is so important to our city. See, we thought we were just coming in and, 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 and marking time. We thought we were doing our religious time card. I'm going to just you know, do my thing for Jesus, get in, get out, and go. But no, no, what we do here, see, when we lift our voice and we give ourselves over to worship in this place and then in our daily lives, there is something that goes out into this city. There is something that's attractive. There is something that's contagious that begins to grip the hearts and minds of an unbelieving world. Are you hearing what I'm saying? See, let me ask you a question. How many people this morning can truly say you're looking for genuine God-given revival. You're really looking for it. I, I mean, you want the kind of revival. I'm not talking about revival where we got a flyer with some guy pointing with a Bible and lightning fly. I'm talking about, I'm talking about revival where it just gets down, dirty, messy. I'm talking about the kind of revival where dope fiends are getting saved. I'm talking about the kind of revival that, that draws in the, 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 the people that are undesirable. I'm talking about the kind of revival that will, that will change a demoniac. How many know what I'm talking I'm talking about the kind of revival where people are impacted. How many really want that? Where people get saved and healed and delivered. Where lives are radically changed. I know I'm looking for that. I want that. That's what we need. We need that in kingdom. Let me tell you something. We, we, this city is desperate. There's problems in this city that cannot be humanly solved. Yeah. 
You could go to programs. You could get prescriptions. You can get counseling. You could do everything under the sun. You will not solve that problem. Why? Because at its very root, those problems are spiritual in nature. You cannot medicate spiritual problems. Somewhere what we've got to do is understand the power of worship. It's why we do what we do. It's who we are. Remember what we do. We, you know, we, everything we do, from picking up paper to preaching behind this pulpit, we do for the one. The one that needs Jesus. The one in your life that you're praying for. We do that. Why? So that they can receive grace, find hope, and experience transformation. So they can find what we have found. Now, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But let me tell you something. Revivals and moves of God are messy, and they're unpredictable. The Bible backs it up. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4, it says, where there are no oxen, the stall is clean. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundance of harvest. That's a powerful point. He's going, you know what? He goes, if you've got ox, you're going to have ox mess you're gonna have you're gonna have to clean the stall i remember when i was a kid i had a horse i had a little pony and my uncle bob he he uh, he uh, boarded my pony they had a, a farm and they had a barn well i never went over there to clean the stall so my uncle to teach me a lesson let it ride for a while and then he called up and said hey your horse is three feet taller so it's time to clean the stall so I go in there with a pitchfork and a lot of determination. Man, who's feeding this horse? You know, because all it did was poop. I loved my horse. I loved riding it. But there was a problem with the horse. They go to the bathroom. That's what you find out when you start having kids. You know what the problem with a baby is? All they do is eat and go to the bathroom. Well, we love babies. Well, so it is with revival. But it's the strength. Do you know it's the strength? Let me, let me put this in modern day English for you. Where there are no new converts, the church is sterile. But it's the strength of a new convert, what's being done in them, that will bring an abundance of harvest. I don't believe I hurt that scripture at all. I think we should be suspicious of anything that's squeaky, squeaky clean, don't you? See, the pro you know what our problem is, is we like things nice, neat, and orderly. We, we, we want a nice, we just, precious church. I go to the precious church. You know, precious moments. You know, we, we like that. We, you know, where everything is, you, you, it's completely predictable. You know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. You, you, you're not taken by surprise at all. You know it, and you could set your watch by it. You go, I, I know exactly when I'm going to get out because I've already told, I've already made my order at Denny's. I got to get there. Dude, don't preach. Don't preach long. Say what you're going to say. Shut up and sit down. <laughs> we like that clean stuff because after all, God is a God of order, right? Look at all the universe. It all is in order. We, and you know what? I've heard that all of my life. Yes, he is a God of order. But I suspect this morning 
that God, God's idea of order is a lot different than ours. See, our, our order is oftentimes really about sterility being sterile than life. Think about it for a moment. Just, just think about it. Childbirth. I remember when my kids were born. Holy cow. I, I, remember, I was there. I was present when all three kids were born. I remember the one I remember the most because it was at our house. <laughs> Kathy had a midwife, and Amy came along. She was nine pounds, and, and it was funny because Kathy's laying on the couch, and the midwife ain't there yet, and her water broke. She goes, John, my water broke. I'm freaking out because <laughs> I may have to catch this baby. On a, I don't catch well. I'm just, no, no, that's not in the job description. My part was done. You know what I'm saying? But then the midwife gets there. We're in the bedroom. Kathy starts going. It's, oh, my God. I was in the corner. And at one point, Amy's like a third of the way out, and Kathy goes, I'm done. No, you can't be done. No, you can't live that way. You, you can't. You, in, this is a one Wait, job. This is it. We're having. It was a mess. I'll tell. You, I'm going to say something that's. You're all going to go. Ooh, and this is why. Uh, this this will make my point. The midwife. She's a great lady. She's a, she's actually a pastor's wife up in Flagstaff. She's really a great woman, and she really did bless us. But she, she's kind of odd. Because after after Amy was born, Becky looks at us and goes, "Do you have a big salad bowl?" I, that's what I said. What? What's that for? She goes, oh, I want to keep the afterbirth. She goes, I'll give you the bowl back. I said, you can keep it. They wanted to do studies. I don't know what you do with all that stuff, but that's a mess. But somehow God looks at that and says, that's perfect order. But if you ask the kid, if you would ask Kathy at that moment, not so much. How many know what I'm talking about? For the child that's been squeezed and pushed out of this place of warm safety into this bright, dangerous world, it's not so much order. But God says that's perfect order. See, that's like worship. Listen to me. That's like worship. You know why? Because worship produces life. Are you hearing me? See, worship is filled with emotion and excitement and energy and passion that seems to be out of order. But somewhere in the chaos of worship that comes from the heart, God finds perfect order because true worship produces life because the presence of God is revealed in worship. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Last year, Kathy and I went on vacation and we ended up at Yellowstone National Park. And if you know anything about Yellowstone, you know that Yellowstone is a hotbed of geological realities. It really, in the modern language, it's one gigantic volcano that has yet to erupt. You know, and everybody goes and oohs and ahs over the geysers, and we look at the cool water and, you know, all of that stuff. But one of the things that you have to do when you go to Yellowstone is you have to go to Old Faithful. And the reason you go to Old Faithful is because it's faithful. 
Every 80 minutes, Old Faithful erupts. And so we went to Old Faithful, and we're there. And it was really cool, because when we got there, I'm, I'm looking around, and there's not many people there. And I'm thinking, this is great. My kind of vacation. Me and Kathy, all by ourselves, you know, we get to watch Old Faithful. But it was about an hour. So, you know, we're milling around. Kathy's looking at stuff and, you know, taking scientific measurements and stuff. And, and I, I don't know all she's doing. But I found a log to sit on, and I sat on the log. And then all of a sudden, I started noticing more and more and more and more people started showing up. Till all of a sudden, there's about 2,000 people. And I'm wondering, where did all these people come from? We drove for miles and never saw a car. I'm thinking, where did, did they go? Where were they? So we're standing there, and I'm thinking, oh, dear God, I'm going to be in the back row. I'm always in the back row when good things happen. You know, because I'm not an aggressive person, and so I don't shove my way to the front. I'm kind of, you know, all right, you can go ahead. You can go ahead. I want to see it. But, hey, Old Faithful went off. It started to burp a little bit, you know, some steam, and everybody gets all excited. Nothing. And then it burped a little bit more and then nothing. Then all of a sudden, that baby went. About, it shot water. It shot a big old stream of water, probably three, four feet around, 100 feet in the air. And it's roaring. The ground's rumbling. And everybody, it was like 2,000 people just went. And they just stood there. And they all just were in awe. And they're looking at this thing. And for two minutes, let me tell you, Two minutes is a long time. And he just stood there in awe. It was almost a worship quality. Why? Because they had witnessed something powerful. It was something beyond themselves. And I'm here to tell you today that the same dynamic should occur when we worship. That those that are watching should stand in awe at the thing that is beyond them that is overpowering. Are you hearing what I'm saying? See, we ought to witness through our worship the spectacular hand of God. We're supposed to witness something beyond ourselves. We are to be in awe, spellbound, mesmerized by this life-giving, life-flowing power of God. See, what Old Faithful does for the tourists in Yellowstone, our worship should do for those that witness our worship. Let me tell you something about Christianity, if you haven't figured this out. The world is watching. The moment you go online and say, I'm a Christian, they're watching. That's you need to understand this. This is a freebie. If you get on Facebook and put out there, I love Jesus, and everybody should, you know, like it. You know, you put on there. If you believe that, like this. But then your next post is criticism or condemnation or vitriol or bitterness. There's confusion because the world is reading. It's confusing. So they're watching. They're watching us. And, and when we worship from the heart, they're watching. And, and, and you know what? Something is being done in them. Listen to this verse of Scripture. It's Psalm 40, verse 3. David's writing. He says, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. 
Many will see it and fear it and will trust in the Lord. Listen to that. They will see it. They will see and fear. They'll see and stand in awe. And then they will trust in the Lord too. That's the power of worship. Now from this verse of scripture, we see two very profound elements of worship. The first one is celebration. The second one is proclamation. See, David, you know that celebration, that's that vertical dimension. That's from us to God. People are watching that. David had an experience with the Lord. God had rescued him and refreshed him. David had an experience with the presence of God. He was changed. And he just couldn't be silent about it. He sung to him and he worshipped his name. He could not contain his joy. David had to worship. You ever been in that place? You had to worship. In Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22, and I want to read this to you so you keep this in context. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. Isn't that funny how we always see God? Something he's not. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when, they got, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now listen. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I want you to think about this, because after the storm, they worshipped him. They had never, as a group before, done that. Never. You can check it out. Search your Bible. From, from the time the disciples came with Jesus to that point, they had never corporately worshipped him. You won't find it. You won't find them worshiping Jesus when he heals. You won't find them worshiping Jesus when he's preaching to the masses. You won't find him, uh, him being worshipped by them when he is opening blind eyes and feeding the thousands. You just won't find it. Only after the incident in the boat did they worship him. And the question is, why? Why? Well, simple. This time, they were the ones who were being saved. This time, their necks were being removed from the noose. One minute, they were at the mercy of the storm, unable to save themselves. The next minute, they were safe, secure, and out of danger. They were saved. Listen to what I'm saying. So they worshipped. They did the one thing they could do. They looked to the one who saved them and worshipped. See, let me say this to you. When you recognize God as creator, you will admire him. When you see his eternal wisdom, you will learn from him. 
When you discover his strength, you will rely on him. But only when he saves you will you worship him. My question to you today is, have you been saved? Then worship him. It wasn't any song that David sung. He celebrated with a new song. There was a freshness, a newness to his experience with God. It was as as though he were seeing God again for the very first time. It was like seeing Old Faithful erupt again and again. It never grows old. Each time, we're amazed, just blown away. And we want to see it again and again. And David knew the source of his good fortune was none other than God himself. Here's the thing I submit to you today. The problem is, many of us have just grown cold towards our salvation. We have forgotten what it's like to be unsaved, to be truly in danger. For some of us, we've just grown cold. This, is, this was the problem with the church in the book of Revelation. I believe it was Ephesus. He, he said, you've lost your first love. You've grown cold. See, there's a funny thing that happens with time. Time can dull the edge unless we make a deliberate decision to not let it. That's why we've got to celebrate. That's why David made a point to always celebrate the goodness of God. He always was in connection in this vertical dimension. Well, there's a second thing that we saw is that there was a horizontal dimension. David said, many will see it. That is, they're going to know the presence of God. When I worship, people should see the presence. People should know the presence of God. He said, well, man, that's a pretty tall order, preacher. You're putting it heavy on me. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. See, here's what religion does, church. Religion will look at you and say, God has a lot of rules and you better follow them. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. That's how religion works, right? And so what, what religion does is it motivates us through guilt. Religion motivates through threat. Okay? And so that's usually how we pick up statements like this. Because now we feel like, oh, great, now i got to worship to the intensity of seeing impact in people. It's on me. No. Here's the thing. When you understand who you are in Christ, that you are, in fact, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, righteousness is no longer a goal that you attain. It's a life that you live. It's the same with worship. God's not saying to us, you better get your worship down or else. He's saying, if you will really worship me, in spirit and in truth, that worship will be visible to a, a dying world. And they'll be impacted by it. They'll know it's God. And they will be in awe of what they see. And in the result is they will put their trust in the Lord. Can you say amen? amen. David praised God and many saw it. 
He didn't merely just, they didn't merely just hear his praise. They saw him worshiping. That's why worship must be demonstrated. Worship must be a participation. It's something we do. Are you hearing me? See, David worshipped. They saw it, and they found what David found. David's joy before the Lord. Listen, David's joy before the Lord became his testimony. This is good. This is where this really gets good. There is a scripture in the book of Revelations. You can look it up. Revelations 19.10. And at the end of 19.10, it says this. The testimonies of Jesus are the spirit of prophecy. It's interesting. What's the testimony of Jesus? What's, what's the testimony of Christ? Well, it's the good news. It's the impact of the good news upon our life. It's the testimony. It's the eyewitness account of God's work in my life. And he says, that is as the spirit of prophecy. In other words, my testimony has the ability to predict not only what God, or not only just tell what God did in me, but it predicts what God wants to do in you. Now, I'll take this a little bit deeper. Okay? Worship was David's testimony. In the Old Testament, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this here in just a minute, but in the Old Testament, there was a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It was also called the Ark of Testimony. And the reason why is because this golden box was filled with a couple things. It had manna in it, it had the rod that budded, and it had uh, the Ten Commandments in it. And they were called the testimony of God. And if you look at the description of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony, on the top of the Ark were two cherubim, two angels, that stood guard over something called the mercy seat. It's interesting that mercy always rests upon the testimony. Catching that? When you testify, that is an act of worship that ushers in the mercy of God that is the spirit of prophecy. Did, did, I, did I get too far out there? When you worship God, you are testifying of the goodness of God in you that brings in the mercy of God that God prophetically intends to pour out on every living being. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That's why worship is fought. That's why the devil don't, the devil don't want you worshiping. He don't mind you going to church as long as you don't do nothing. Be a good little Christian now. You just better behave because we like it orderly. God's a God of order, so don't get out of order. Are you hearing what I'm saying? See, worship attracts the presence of God. True worship. Worship celebrates His goodness and it proclaims His fullness to a curiously desperate world looking for something real. How many know the world is looking for something real? You know, I think the world is tired of the fake and the phony. 
I think the world is tired of Christians that say one thing but do another. I think the world is tired of sterile, flat, one-dimensional Christianity. I think they're looking for a Christianity that has true power that can make impact in their lives. Because look at people are looking for so many things. They're looking for an answer that's going to make the difference. And church, we have it. So I want to take this thought just a little bit deeper. I'm almost done. So that you can fully appreciate the power of worship. And I want to look at a lesson that David learned. And it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the verses. I'm just going to expound on them. Um, but I, 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 I ask that you read it later. If you want a full uh, account of this, read 2 Samuel chapter 6 and then read 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And you'll get a full understanding of what's happening here. Now, I need you to remember a few things. First, true worship attracts the presence of God. I'm talking about not the general. See, God's in this place. But the kind of presence that I'm talking about is I'm talking about the manifest presence. I'm talking about the presence of God that's there to heal, deliver, set free, save. I'm talking about the kind of presence that's tangible, that you feel and know God is in the house. True worship draws the hearts of those who are worshipped to it. And true worship produces life. Now with those thoughts in mind, I need to give you a little background to kind of set the stage for David's lesson. King, the king of Israel, before David, was King Saul. And King Saul, during his reign, <coughs> during his reign lost value for the presence of wasn't that he despised it. It was more like he just didn't have time for it. He had other priorities. And in the end, that dismissal became the catalyst for his downfall. Now, in those days, the presence of God was associated with the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was where God would rest on the mercy seat. And that was central to worship. But somehow, King Saul allowed the presence or the ark to be stolen. The Philistines took the ark. And there's all kinds of great funny stories about what happened to them. One of them, one of my favorite ones, is they took the ark and they put it in their temple, the temple of Dagon. And they put it at the feet of Dagon. Because they wanted to make a statement. Dagon was kind of over God. Well, the next day they get up and Dagon is down on his face in front of the ark. So they thought, oh, well, you know, we didn't stabilize Dagon. You know, we've got to help our God out every now and then. So we need to set him up and we'll, we'll kind of put some supports in, make sure he doesn't fall over again. Because we, we don't want our God hurt. Well, the next day they got up and Dagon's head was cut off and his hands were cut off and he was down on his face again. Because God says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But the Philistines had it. And Saul ended up being removed from being king. And David became king. And David wanted the presence of God back into Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story. And if you want to read it specifically, it's in verses 12 through 23. But it says this, that, David announced to the children of Israel his plan to usher back the presence of God into the city. So the people got ready, the priests were ready, they, the musicians trained for the day, and the day came, the ark 
of the covenant, the Ark of Testimony, the presence, was coming back home. And as the presence was coming into Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that David stripped himself of his kingly garments and he put on a priest's tunic. Basically, it was priest's underwear. Now, this wasn't something that a king would normally do. How many know what I'm talking about? But David was no normal king. He would become known as the man after God's heart or the man after God's presence. And David danced before the ark with all of his might. All of Israel lined the streets rejoicing in the actual presence of God coming home. The grandeur, the magnificence, the sheer volume must have been overwhelming. Everyone present was impacted by this experience. And it's worth noting that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, followed David into Jerusalem. And wherever David danced, God followed. He said, well, why are you saying that? Because God's always responding to our offering of worship. Many respond to God only when his presence is realized. But some respond before he actually comes. And they usher in the presence of God. Another way of looking at it is God showed up wherever King David danced in an undignified fashion. It might surprise you this morning to find out what's attractive to God. What are you saying, Pastor? I got to dance in my underwear? We might not find it attractive, but God does. For some of us, it might help us. I want you to notice something. Here's the point that I really want you to notice. There was someone missing from that crowd. There was a notable absentee that day. Michael, the daughter of Saul, the wife of David, was up in her bedroom in the palace looking out the window and she was embarrassed. She was offended. She thought it was foolishness. Extreme worship always looks like foolishness to those that stand at a distance. Are you hearing me? Think about it for a moment. We hear stories all the time about people that were lost at sea they're in a raft, they got separated from a group or went overboard, and they sp- spend them 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, people have survived in the middle of the ocean with nothing. They tell stories of how they caught seagulls and had to eat them raw. I imagine a seagull's kind of like a pigeon. It's not really the top of my list. They would every now and then catch a fish and they would eat that raw. They had to collect rainwater if it rained. They were so exposed to their sun, their skin became like leather. There was no hope. It was endless sea. They could see horizon to horizon with no one. They were utterly alone. And then in a moment of time, one moment of time, a boat shows up. And for the first time, they have a spark of hope. That boat sees them and stops. And they are rescued and brought on deck. I guarantee you they are worshiping in a way that we would never worship because they really don't care because once I was dead, but now I am alive. Once I had no hope, now I have all hope. 
Church, we need to come back to that. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. And I don't really care what you think about my worship. And if I worship in my underwear and you don't like it, don't look. <laughs> See, some things can only be understood when you're a part of it. So I just don't understand that. You won't, not from a distance. But once you get in it, you will be well aware of what's going on. And that is the case with authentic relationships. See, Michael was appalled at David's lack of regard. Thought, you, you're the king. You should be much more dignified than that. Your lack of public decorum is shameful. And instead of honoring David in his accomplishment, she shamed him. Her disregard for the presence of God revealed that she too carried the same lack of value for the presence that her father Saul had when he lived. And here's the tragic thing. If you go to verse 23 in 2 Samuel 6, these are the words that are stated. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. See, whenever someone despises extravagant worship, they put themselves in an extremely dangerous position because barrenness is the natural result of despising worship. Well, I don't despise worship. I just don't want to do it. That's called denial. Uh -huh. Well, it's good for you, but it's just not me. That's denial. Barrenness and the absence of worship go hand in hand. See, the devil doesn't care that you worship tamely. Why? Because tame worship doesn't get it done. It's like, it's not alive. But extreme worship exposes religion. We all have a religious bone. And that's why when you see somebody that's just truly lost in it and passionate about it, and, and if you're not joining in, you kind of feel a little creeped out by it. Because that, 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 worship, that religious bone's kicking in. Well, we're in church. We ought not to be like that. <laughs> go, go, I challenge you, go read some of the, the views of heaven. Especially in Revelation. It says thousand times a thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand angels shouting. He is worthy, glorious, worthy to be praised. It says it sounds like many waters. It's, it's like Niagara Falls times 10. They are passionate. And God creates all kinds of weirded out creatures to worship him. There's angels that have six eyes and six wings and 12 feet. I don't know what all they have. It's kind of a zoo up there. But that's God. Is there hope for me? Yes, and I... I bring this to a close. Jason can come and play. Is there hope for me? I, I need you to listen to this. I'm bringing it to an end. I promise you we'll be out. Isaiah 51.1, listen to these words. Sing, O barren, you have not born. Break forth into singing, 
and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. What a promise that's linked with worship. Worship will bring revival. Worship will produce life in you. Worship will give you everything that you've ever hoped and dreamed for in your heart. Worship will make you live again. This man, my Christianity has been barren. It's been lifeless. It's been flat. Sing, O barren. Worship, you have borne no fruit. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, not soft, not to yourself, you who have not labored with child. And then you will produce more than those that have been married all along. That's the promise of worship. That's why we worship. Regardless of the circumstances, we will become fruitful. We need to remember this morning that worship attracts the presence of God, the manifest presence. True worship draws the hearts of those who witness it. And true worship produces life. See, worship, praise, all the things that we do to glorify His name, the obedience that flows from our heart, the service that we do, our life should be a worship unto him. And he says from that, when it comes from a heart, not your mind, your heart, he says that will be fruitful in you. Can you say amen? Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful revelation of your word and we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would encourage us Father, we pray that you would ignite that spark in us. Lord, that you would breathe. Father, I pray right now, <coughs> breathe upon your people. Breathe upon this congregation. Father, ignite hearts right now. Let them be filled, God, with that power of worship, that, that spirit of worship. Father, we just give you all the glory. I wonder as every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I'm not right with God today, but I need him. I want him. I want Jesus. I want to be saved. If that's you, would you lift your hand up quickly? Just lift it up anywhere in this congregation. Amen. I see that hand. I see that one. You can put it down. I see that one. You can put it down. Anyone else? You want to raise your hand? I need Jesus. I need him. Well, I want you to pray this prayer with me if you all would pray. Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, to be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus has died and raised again, you'll be saved. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask my ministry team to come up front. Hang on just a second. We're not done yet. We'll be done in 30 seconds. They're going to come up. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want you to come up and just see one of them. Tell them. Just look at them and say, I just got saved. And let them pray with you. Let them minister to you. 
If you have a need of any kind, you just want somebody to join in faith with you for something, a healing, a provision, direction, whatever it might be, come on up. Let them pray for you. They're here to minister to you. Amen? So why don't we stand to our feet, and we're going to release you today, let you go. You have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. We will see you next week. God bless.